2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jarrett Kobeck, on two books, Motor Spirit and How to Find Zodiac. Jarrett Kobeck is a Turkish-American writer living in California. His novella Atta, a psychedelic biography of the 9-11 hijacker Mohammed Atta, was an unexplained bestseller in parts of Canada. His novel, I Hate the Internet, was a bestseller everywhere, doing especially well in Serbia. His follow-up novel, The Future Won't Belong, wasn't a bestseller anywhere, but did receive a shortlisting for the Literary Review's 2017 Bad Sex in Fiction Award. His novel, Only Americans Burn in Hell, which we talked about on Little Atoms a few years ago, burnt his bridges with all of the major American publishing houses. And so Jarrett has returned to his own imprint for his two new books, which we're going to be talking about today. And those are Motor Spirit and How to Find Zodiac. Jarrett, welcome back to Little Atoms.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: So we'll talk about Motor Spirit first that book acts as, or perhaps it's the other way around, but one of these books is like a um, a book-length appendix to the other book. But let's talk first of all about how this whole project came about in the first place.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to write about California and California in the 1970s in particular, because that is... Uh, the moment where California seems the absolute craziest, other than arguably now, but <laughs> and Zodiac happens to be a pretty good encapsulation of that. The letters start coming in in sixty nine and then there was a pretty definitive bookend in seventy eight and it occurred to me that really engaging with Zodiac would allow one to write about this moment. I mean, I've tried to write about California in the 70s before and I failed notably to make it work. And also there was a pandemic. I was not, you know, there was nothing to do. And so this seemed like this seemed like a profitable way, not necessarily financially, to Spend the empty hours of the pandemic. And so that's what I did.
2: When we spoke before, we talked about how you'd become a sort of reluctant prophet of the internet era. And I wondered if, to what extent, going back to Zodiac is first of all looking back to something that's explicitly set in the past before all of that, while at the same time, it's also finding the seeds of everything that was to come.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, part of the motivation for writing about California in the 1970s uh, was the sense that one could write about the present and the dysfunction of the present without ever having to mention anything that was happening now. Because there is a real problem when you write about the moment you're in, particularly This moment, which is dominated by internet companies that come and go, that rise and fade, which is when you write about that stuff at the exact moment of publication, the text starts to age profoundly. So I hate the internet is a good example of that, where that's a book that is what six years old, I think, and now reads like somebody writing, I don't know, a history of Weimar Germany, right? It's supposedly a book about the internet that I don't think ever mentions Instagram, certainly doesn't mention TikTok. And I kind of got tired of it. But at the same time, all the internet, all the underlying ideologies that have influenced people that are very prominent in terms of how the internet runs or how the internet was constructed by virtue of san francisco and the bay area being adjacent to silicon valley all of it comes from san francisco and so it's a way of going back to the well without having to i mean you know think about it like this if somebody had written and i'm sure people did somebody probably wrote a book in 2020 that got published in 2021 about Twitter. That entire book now makes no sense after the acquisition of Twitter by Musk. And so the question that has really sort of happened that I've really had to start asking myself rather is, is it really worth trying to chase the now? Or is there some way to write about the now in a way where you don't have to mention all of these things that come and go instantly and that are fairly unsettled stories.
2: And can we just say something briefly about writing in the genre of popular crime as well? These two books entirely read like true crime books at the same time in different ways. They are both clearly commenting on that whole idea, that whole genre. Motor spirit, perhaps more straightforwardly literary true crime, how to find Zodiac feels a little bit more familiar to anybody that's read a Jarrett Kobeck novel, not least because you refer to yourself in the third person all the way through the book. But just tell us something about wanting to sort of explore the true crime genre in the first place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, like everyone in the last 10 years, I have had you know, we've all become true crime addicts to one degree or another. And I've always actually liked true crime going back, you know, to being a teenager. And I wanted to, I don't know, I just, you know, I actually, I'll tell you what, why I decided to do it. I reread Gordon Burns, Peter Sutcliffe book. And then I read his book about Fred and Rosemary West. And I mean, I don't know if you've read the West book. I have. Yeah.
2: Uh, The Happy Murder. What's it called? Happy happy Like Murderers. murderers. Happy Like Murderers. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the absolute greatest true crime books.
1: I, I mean, it's one of the greatest books ever written. It's probably the greatest true crime book ever written. It's also the single most depressing book that I can think of having ever read and reading that and i read it right before i started doing all of this sort of made me think of think that it was possible and think that it would be really interesting cuz you know his yorkshire ripper book is an extraordinarily good book but it is really identifiable as literary true crime the west's book is something quite different and that really appealed to me like trying to work in that model of whatever burn achieves while writing about really the most depressing things and the most horrifying things that anyone has ever written about so basically blame gordon burn
2: so we've got so much to talk about in these two books that i'm i'm not gonna waste everybody's time getting you to recap the zodiac murders everybody's seen the films one of the greatest american films of the past 20 years even though we'll establish that their suspect is more than likely wrong it gets the you know the details pretty well spot on a lot of the time so let's talk about motor spirit the book which is your exploration of the history of of zodiac and the killings and and the aftermath but um tell us what motor spirit is
1: well i think you just actually did oh do you mean that the phrase motor spirit yeah i mean
2: the phrase motor spirit."
1: yeah uh it's hate street slang um for amphetamine psychosis or more broadly drug psychosis and it was something that emerged during the research for the book and you know one of the things about california in the 1970s is that If you imagine, and I don't think this story is actually true because you can read, I mean, probably the text that everyone knows is um, Joan Didion's piece about the hate, but there's also a book by a guy, I might get his name wrong, called Nicholas von Hoffman. It's called something like, We Are the People Our Parents Warned Us Against, which is an awkward title. Anyway, those are texts about the drug scene in the 1960s that paints a very different picture than the one that we sort of imagine or that sort of come down culturally where everyone is just sort of like happy smoking grass and dropping acid and turning on. But I think pretty definitively, by the time you get to 1970, California becomes a state in which Everyone is wrestling with the drug problem and the hangover of the 60s. And when you read about a lot of these crimes, Zodiac excluded, but when you read about a lot of the crime and the chaos that's happening in California in the 1970s, most of it seems to be the product of, if not amphetamine psychosis, then drug psychosis. And that is, it seemed like it emerged as a running theme through the book. And of course, California now in the present has a really profound problem where not everybody, but there's a lot of drug use and the speed has seemingly created a lot of the homeless epidemic. So While I'm writing the book, I can look out my window and see people in the thrall of motor spirit. It just all seemed like it connected.
2: In the book, you make an explicit difference between Zodiac and the Zodiac. So tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So in
1: 1986, Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac gets published and the book You know, I'm extraordinarily fond of that book, but to me, it does seem like the moment of reification of something that had been happening even from the beginning, which is Zodiac, whoever he was, Zodiac was an actual individual who did a handful of documentable things like killing people or sending in letters. The Zodiac is more like everyone's contemporary misapprehension of what's happening and the way that that story builds throughout time and then after Gray Smith's book comes out, I think that then becomes, you know, like the possibility of Zodiac gets lost and the Zodiac becomes the only thing that you can engage with and, you know, to some degree, and it's it, not to an inconsiderable degree. The people who are on the internet who are really into zodiac have done incredible amount of work on trying to disconnect zodiac from the zodiac. You know, those people started out in the exact same place as everyone else and then have spent two decades and some change doing. Incredible research trying to get to what the actual story is. And maybe that's the simplest way of explaining it. The zodiac is the story you think you know, the zodiac is the story as it actually happened.
2: I've not actually read Graysmith's book, I've seen the film multiple times. And one thing the film doesn't explicitly do is what you do in this book, which is link. The look, psychically link the murders of Zodiac with the murders in LA of, of the Manson family in ways that are, you know, while they're obviously not exactly connected to each other, Zodiac is obviously in sort of really lame ways influenced by Manson. And I also liked how you talk about Manson's murders as murders that are, you know, explicitly LA and the Zodiac's murders as explicitly linked to San Francisco and the Bay Area. Yeah,
1: I mean, it was something that I didn't understand until I started doing the research. After Sharon Tate and everyone else in the house on Cielo Drive are killed, and prior to the apprehension of medicine, which is at the beginning of, so she's killed on August, or the, there's some ambiguity, but say August 9th, she, that's when the killings happen at Cielo Drive. Manson and most of the family aren't apprehended until December, I think December 2nd, but I might have that wrong. And what every newspaper in the country in that 3-month period does is just speculate about what happened and linger over the details. It's it's really astonishing how much ubiquity that story actually had. And yeah, it occurred to me that one thing we definitely know about Zodiac is that he was reading the newspapers and that Zodiac, like anyone, was thinking about, you know, maybe more than anyone, Zodiac was interested in being in the press. Suddenly, here's a template for how you get a murderous rampage to be in the press seemingly indefinitely.
2: You also described zodiac as uh, antecedent not of what at that point was not known as serial killers but as the modern phenomenon of school shooters
1: yeah i mean i think it's a really inadequate classification but i think serial killing is also not the greatest classification for zodiac i mean did he kill him serial of course but zodiac's strange because zodiac doesn't exactly fit any of the templates that we know. But there is a way to think about it in terms of mass shooting happening in slow time. And then, you know, one of the things that has developed over the last 10 or so years, if not prior to that, but certainly in the last 10 or so years, someone goes on a mass shooting rampage and then they leave, they have a manifesto and I think there's a way you can think about the letters as serving a similar function to a manifesto. And then that classification, while still totally inadequate, starts to make a little bit more sense, right?
2: And just one other thing about this era before we, we move on to to the other book and, and to look at the person that you develop as the suspect. This is an era before DNA, which is something Both DNA and ubiquitous cameras everywhere are two things Mm -hmm. that have changed law enforcement beyond recognition. You repeatedly describe law enforcement or the criminal justice system at that time as a myth that society told itself just to make itself feel better talking again about true crime my wife and i are absolutely obsessed with the really terrible lurid programs uh, forensic files or medical detectives depending on what channel you're watching it on and and these programs are just various different branches of pseudoscience put forward as um as forensic science so yeah so just mention something about what police work was conducted in those days
1: yeah i mean it's interesting because most of the stuff... I mean, there's a certain base level uh police work, which I think was legitimate, right? And I suspect that probably 70% of people who got convicted were convicted on the basis of that, right? Where there's some kind of... First of all, fingerprints are work, right? Like, and that... Once the development of that happened, that's a, a reliable thing. But... And then you have... You know, you have sort of really shoe leather policing, which is you talk to people who knew the victim or you talk to people who knew the suspect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But by the 70s and up until about the advent of DNA uh, forensics, cops were relying on a lot of things that have since been really, really called into question. Um Fiber evidence is a thing that a couple of years ago, the New York Times ran an article about uh, the FBI's fiber testing lab. And I I don't fully remember the details, but it it came across as basically, we have no faith that this works. I'm trying to think Oh, bite mark evidence, which was used to convict Ted Bundy, has been, I think, almost completely discredited. polygraphs are pretty questionable
2: and and obviously the one that's relevant here is handwriting analysis
1: yeah and handwriting analysis i'm really not comfortable with there's a variety of reasons why but particularly in this case there's something really odd about handwriting analysis which is zodiac's first three mailings which are all sent on the same day to three different newspapers, they include a letter and they include part of a cipher. And the thing that's weird about that, and this is something I've only been thinking about recently, is the cipher is written in a completely different script than the handwriting. Like if you saw those two documents independent of one another you would not know they were written by the same person. And I think there's been, and it's, you know, you can see the reasons why it's not an irrational leap. There's been a real focus on the handwriting and the letters as being sort of the definitive Zodiac handwriting, you know, particularly, I mean, it changes over time because he adopts another script, but essentially the handwriting as seen in the first, three letters, I think is generally seen as like the definitive Zodiac handwriting. And maybe it is, right? But at the same time, those letters came with documents that were written in a completely different handwriting. And I think the question sort of becomes, if you are trying to do handwriting analysis, which is the actual handwriting i mean i don't have the answer i don't think anyone has the answer but it it's a very ambiguous technique for trying to prove anything and i'm not sure how much weight it actually has in american courtrooms anymore there was a point where it had a ton of weight and that's the thing like dna and you're right too the cctv Although CCTV up until very recently and even still has not had the same kind of ubiquity that it has in the United Kingdom, you know, I mean, you know, because you're there, it's like every, like the craziest thing about CCTV in that country is it seems like every single public action is just cataloged and monitored. It's astonishing.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today, I'm talking to Jarrett Kobeck, and we're talking about his books Motor Spirit and How to Find Zodiac. And Jarrett, we're going to move on to How to Find Zodiac. You mentioned in this book that you know if people are not familiar with Zodiac's killings, they should read Motor Spirit first. In How to Find Zodiac, you reluctantly focus in on a man that you discover who becomes a suspect for you, this guy called Paul Dore. So tell us, first of all, where he first appeared for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was researching Motor Spirit, one of the things that became pretty clear is that a lot of, maybe not all, but a lot of the stranger aspects of Zodiac's letters were cultural references. And this is something that actually I think had been known from the minute when the first cipher was solved because he's talking about either the short story or the film The Most Dangerous Game and then, you know, later he sent in a letter that just quotes a patter song from uh, Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, which of course was instantly identified. But a lot of the other stuff that was pretty mysterious turned out to have pretty plausible explanations as cultural quotation. And I was interested in seeing if there was a way to figure out where Zodiac's slaves in the afterlife thing, which is like something he's always writing about, came from I, For a variety of reasons, I had started to wonder if it didn't come from pulp fiction or from comic books. And I have a friend who I've known my entire life who is uh, an expert on comic books. So I asked him if he recognized anything like that. And this is a guy who's read probably as many golden age comic books as anyone. So anyway, I asked him, If he recognized the reference, he didn't. But then he texted me back, being like, I don't recognize the reference, but Zodiac is really pinging my fanboy radar. This dude probably wrote for fanzines. So (laughs) I got that text message. And then I was like, well, what's the worst that can happen? And I Googled Vallejo. Fanzines and Vallejo is where essentially where two of the four attacks took place. Zodiac, one of his first letters, is sent to a Vallejo newspaper. It has long long been speculated that Zodiac had some distinct connection to Vallejo so I do that Google search, and I think the second result is a scan of a fanzine from winter nineteen seventy and it has a letter from a guy named Paul Dorr who is writing from a Vallejo with a Vallejo return address. And in that letter, he is talking about why everyone should use one-cent stamps. And the thing about that is that Zodiac's most recent letter, which was a letter that he had sent in December 20th, To this lawyer Melvin Belli, who's like the most famous person in San Francisco at that time, and he only used one cent stamps on it. Now, I don't see this and think, oh yeah, this is (laughs) this is Zodiac. But I did think, well, what's the worst that can happen to sort of go down this pathway? And so I start researching Dor, very quickly discover that he had published his own fanzines, figure out how to get those fanzines from the libraries that have them. Not all of them, but a substantial amount. And the stuff that starts coming in is remarkably similar to Zodiac.
2: We obviously don't have time to you know, present a credible case against uh, Baldur on this well, podcast. I mean, it's all so, there in some, the book.
1: I think, I think some people would argue that even though I've had all the time in the world, I still <laughs> haven't presented a credible case.
2: Um, well, I think you do. And it's all there in the book. But um, what I want to do is, is jump in and out of some of those areas of, of research around the sort of cultural stuff. But first of all, i if I'm interviewing someone on this show about a nonfiction book, I will inevitably at some point ask them to tell me something about the research they did for that book. This book is, well, research is almost the subject of this book, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it's a book about doing research. I think it's, I mean, I think the book's about three things, right? You absolutely have identified research and how you do research as one of the topics, which you know is also sort of the subject of fincher's film uh The other clearly is making an argument without ever really definitively stating that Dora is zodiac, that he might be zodiac, and then the third thing I think is. And, you know, in some ways, this is what appealed to me the most. It's a book about engaging with a kind of the work in the writings of a kind of person who never gets a book length treatment of their writing, right? Like nobody ever writes a 200 page critical biography of a working class guy who self published just doesn't happen. And so I think I think those are the three things the book is about. But you're, of course, very right that it's as much about the process of how to research and how to find things as anything else.
2: Well, you say that people don't often write the biography of a, you know, a working class man who self-publishes. But one of the things that's incredible about this is that you find lots of Dawes fanzines in university collections. Why are they there?
1: Uh, That's a really interesting question. Um, So Dorr essentially had three strains in which he published. One is science fiction and, and published fanzines, I should say. One path is science fiction. One is what I think he would have called wildcraft, but we can sort of identify more as libertarian. And then the third is ufology. So The easily available stuff, and by easily, I mean the stuff that you dig for and then discover is in a university somewhere. It's because science fiction people, science fiction fandom has always been obsessively self-referential and self-obsessed. So what that means is there were a handful of people who were out there collecting every fanzine. That they could get their hands on. And those people's collections eventually made their way about in the previous decade, made their way into libraries, like, and have since been cataloged. This book would not have been possible 10 years ago because those collections were still in the hands of the people who collected them. The libertarian stuff, I did not find much of it before writing the book. And then I discovered in June, maybe, May, June, that Temple University has a collection of all of Door's 1960s, 1970s libertarian publications. And the reason they have it is because he mailed it to them himself. He mailed practically every copy or every issue of his thing called Pioneer to them. And the UFOlogy stuff is kind of the most interesting, where as far as I know, there is only one issue of this thing he did called Unknown, uh, and it's issue 19. And his numbering is a little questionable, but assume that issue 19 is Preceded by some number of issues, and I think the reason why that stuff hasn't survived is because you know, like ufology, Fortiana, that's always a shifting story, and the document of the previous moments isn't quite useful anymore. It's like it's why the Fortian Times every ten years will publish a new story about the Murray Island UFO incident because about every 10 years, everything in paranormal milieus, the understanding of the phenomena changes, and the old understanding is rejected. So it's kind of a big hole, the ufology stuff, but not as big as as it seemed when the book came out. Because in the last year of when Dor was publishing Pioneer, the last five or six issues of it, he just, he just, copied issues of unknown and stuck them in pioneer and then whited out the name of the whited out the word unknown. So that's it's not as incomplete, but basically the only reason the second two strains of his publishing survive at all is because for some reason around 1972 he started mailing copies of this thing to the contemporary collections no sorry the contemporary culture collections at temple university otherwise i suspect this stuff would be lost for all time
2: in terms of the um the sort of fanzine comic sci-fi culture parts there's a particular comic called tim holt number 30 tell us something about that
1: yeah i mean this is actually one of the places where since the publication of the book i've become more skeptical so and zodiac sends this card to the San Francisco Chronicle writer Paul Avery on October 28th, 1970, on the back of the card, it says, there's like this kind of acrostic and the acrostic vertically says paradise and horizontally says slaves. And then in the four quadrants uh, created by the acrostic, there is by guns, by rope, By fire, by knife. And I think in around 2013, an online Zodiac researcher named Tahoe27 discovered that on the cover of Tim Holt number 30, which is an old Western comic from 1952, that there is a wheel of death that says by knife, by rope, by guns, by fire. And I find that to be pretty convincing, although. The more that I've thought about it, the less I understand it. I suppose that's the best way to say it because the Halloween card, and this is something that I'm not sure anyone else has sort of figured out. And to be fair to them, I only figured it out because the San Francisco Chronicle has been digitized. And that stuff only went online a couple of years ago. On October 27th, avery publishes an article about a new serial killer in san francisco and i think the article is called like a jack the ripper theory of the murders and it's this very strange article in which avery is linking jack the ripper to this recent string of serial murders And the reason he has to do that is because 1970 is an era where people know that people kill in serial, but the categorization doesn't exist of the serial killer. So you see it in the papers of the time. Everyone has to use historical reference. And the article is really curious because it's about someone who is killing young African American prostitutes and the most recent victim was found in Presidio Heights, which is where Zodiac did his last known attack. It's also where Paul Pelosi got hit in the head with a hammer. And you get to the bottom of the article and Avery quotes a work on Jack the Ripper where it's like, yeah, he was this anonymous killer who sent in letters, et cetera, et cetera. And you really get the impression... that he's referencing Zodiac. My sense of this is that Zodiac absolutely thought that was the case because he then sends in the Halloween card, which is full of a ton of detail. It's full of a lot of the things that have seemed really mysterious about that card. If you read the articles about these serial that Avery wrote, and then the one that precedes it by a couple of days, all of that stuff really starts to look like a reference to this series of murders, and particularly the by knife, by rope, by gun, by fire. The person who did this, his name was Stanley Nelson, who was killing these prostitutes. You read Avery's article, and it's about people being stabbed, burned, and tied up, by Nelson. And I think the point of that card is that Zodiac is trying to do what he always does, which is claim other murders that he didn't commit. And so it gets to this really strange thing where it's like, did Zodiac write the back of that thing and accidentally reproduce the cover text of Tim Holt number 30? Or... Did he have Tim Holt number 30 before that, or had seen it or interacted with it in some way, and then had the incredible good fortune of having Paul Avery write an article about these series of murders where Zodiac could then link himself to those murders by quoting the cover of Tim Holt number 30? I don't know. You know, like I've become much more skeptical about that. Or skeptical isn't the right word because I actually find skeptical might be, I don't know, but I find both scenarios to be totally implausible and yet clearly one happened. And I don't know. And I mean there's there's some pretty good evidence, I think, or some interpretation of the evidence in the previous cards that Zodiac is someone who has a connection to science fiction fandom which would lend itself more to the scenario of him having had the comic book on hand. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing because I feel like, and it's probably my fault, you know, because I wrote about it pretty heavily in both books. I feel like that's one of the places that other people have picked up on it, on the argument for Dor. And it's, it's probably the place where I have the least confidence now.
2: You mentioned his, his part in the um the libertarian world, survivalist world of those days. He was a, a member of a, a group called the Minutemen, which I guess was a sort of um seventies version of the Proud Boys. I want to though in this area make you relive what you describe as the worst parts of the research for both of these books, because I am dying to talk about John Norman's gore books with you.
1: So, Dor was really into John Norman's gore books. And uh, you know those books are well. I mean, they're so they start out, and I think he publishes the first book in sixty six or sixty seven. They start out as a kind of like sexy version of Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the the conceit is that in our solar system there is a tenth planet. That is exactly equidistant in its orbit from Earth, so that on Earth we can never see it because it's always behind the other side of the sun. And that people from that planet routinely come and kidnap Earthlings and bring them back to that planet. And the planet is weird because it's run, it's run by like these insectoid aliens who have somehow geoengineered an atmosphere in which no one dies. And then most controversially, one of the, I don't know, maybe, I don't know how you say it. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. One of the currencies on the planet of gore <laughs> is female slaves. And so the series for the first two or three books is uh it's like Edgar Rice Burroughs and their slaves and they're kind of being forced into having sex with their owners but it's it's not it's not what it becomes right so by the time you get to the mid 70s it's a series of books about aliens coming to earth and kidnapping feminists from like the streets of New York City who are then brought back to gore and basically are sh- like their feminism, their feminist illusions are shed as they learn that slavery is the true empowerment of women and they're like raped constantly. It's a truly appalling series of books. Priest Kings of Gore, which is the third book in the series, is actually a pretty good book that I read for this, but I read quite a few of these books while doing How to Find Zodiac and. It was singularly the worst experience of the project.
2: And Dor is, is very interested, although he's he's a married man who stays married to his wife until the day he dies. He's constantly attempting or pretending to attempt to set up polyamorous communes somewhere in the California countryside, to the extent that he starts writing to prisons, trying to get women who have just been released from prison to move into his communes.
1: Yeah, he was really in. Well, I mean, it's interesting because the word polyamory didn't even exist then. Uh, that word was invented in an article in this publication called green egg uh in 1990 in an article called a bouquet of lovers but yeah fundamentally that is correct i mean i think i would modify modify that slightly because the weirdness of door is it also seems like he's trying to set up these communes in the hobbit in like land where for a little while it's not consistent, but around 71, 72, maybe a little earlier, he reads Lord of the Rings and then he sort of decides that hobbit holes are actually the way to go for housing. So he's trying to set up sex communes in hobbit villages, which is unusual. Although, you know, it's funny, the New York Times, and I, I've, said, I've mentioned the Times twice in this, I am not I mean, I am, of course, but I'm not just like one of these effete coastal liberals whose only frame of reference is the New York Times. But the Times did run an article uh, a couple of weeks ago about Maloney and how her youth was spent, you know, her summer. She used to go away to summer camp for like Tolkien Hobbit village right wing summer camps. So it's not a totally unprecedented idea. Maybe the sex commune aspect, but I don't know. You never know what Italians are getting up to.
2: These books were actually published. You published them in um, in February, and somehow I, I missed the publication. And I, I came to them because uh, my wife spotted a uh, L.A. mag article where you were actually put together with um, Doors' daughter, Gloria. So I wanted to talk about both that and how that, how meeting her, and talking to her has sort of elucidated some of the stuff in the book or, you know, change your mind in any way. But also you've mentioned in the interview that things have happened since the publication to perhaps, you know, shed more light or or the opposite.
1: Yeah, so through a series of mechanisms, I was connected to a magazine feature writer named Aaron Gill. I mean, he's other things as well, but he does seem to be a guy who does a bunch of long-form pieces, he wanted... He decided he wanted to write about the books. So, I mean, the first thing he did was get in touch with Paul Paldor's daughter, Gloria. And at the time that that happened, she had heard about the books through some mechanism that I don't fully understand. And was thinking about suing me. And then she got the books and she read, in particular, How to Find Zodiac and decided that actually the argument was probably true and that she wasn't going to sue me. I mean, meeting her was really interesting. You know, what she painted a portrait of was a deeply dysfunctional household with a violently abusive father. And, you know, one of the things about this is these are 50-year-old memories. And, you know, that's a very difficult thing to interact with and, and draw conclusions from. But I have to say, I have found her to be pretty consistent in her stories. I find her to be totally credible. So, I mean, just the fact that someone's daughter could read a book about their father and recognize the portrait of him in that is significant. And then she also had this really amazing photograph of Dor playing dress up right around. It has to be around the Zodiac era. And of course, Zodiac is someone who famously played dress up. But probably the most significant thing that's happened is again the uh copies of pioneer from temple and those are interesting because there's not some of the material in there only includes door further and there's not really anything that excludes him on the basis of that And then also, I mean, there's also a pretty decent way, and I only found this after the book came out, although apparently it had been online for years. I don't know how I didn't find it. Somebody had. (laughs) So, one of the things that emerged in the course of investigating Dorr is that he was a member of the Society for Creative Anachronism. When I saw that, and this is people who are medieval recreationists when i saw that it occurred to me like zodiac is someone who famously wore an executioner's hood i wonder if there were any renaissance festivals happening on the day of that murder because one of the things about that hood is like why would anyone have it and i guess you know one of the a totally plausible answer is well he made the hood for the killing Except the problem is no one was really supposed to... Everyone who saw it was supposed to end up dead. And he, for whatever reason, the person who was attacked that day, the male survived. But Zodiac thought he was dead because he made a phone call about an hour or so later saying that he was dead. Anyway, so I do this research and I discover that, yeah... In fact, there was a Renaissance Festival happening an hour and a half away from the site of the attack, and it was happening every weekend day of that month, including the day of the attack. So the thing is, I had not found the program for it. And then, I did not know, I was just Googling around, and I did find the program. And so September 27th is the day of the attack. And the Society for Creative Anachronism, which Door was a member of, is actually hosting, actually has an event where they're, you know, doing medieval recreational battles. And I think that event happens at four PM. So if Dorr, who was a member of the group, went to that event, there's no way he could have got into the scene of that attack that was happening that same day there's problems with that which i can go into but that is a plausible scenario for excluding door which i had not genuinely just did not find in the the year or whatever the 10 months of researching the book it's not the greatest exclusionary scenario for a bunch of reasons like it's a chain of conditional ifs that each one has to have happened but it could have happened and if it did happen then door is not zodiac
2: so i've been talking to Jarrett kobeck we've been talking about his books motor spirit and how to find zodiac both of which are published by we heard you like books Jarrett, thank you so much for taking the time to share them with me
1: yeah thanks for having me
2: this episode of little atoms was produced presented and edited by me neil denny Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.
0: Even on a budget,